Welcome to the Mosaic Church Sermon Podcast. Mosaic Church seeks to engage the modern age with the historic Christian faith. If you don't have a home church, please don't use this podcast as a substitute for being a member of a local community of faith. Whether you call Mosaic your home or not, we hope that you find this sermon convicting and encouraging in your walk with Jesus. Here's our lead pastor, Pastor Greg Brown, with this week's sermon. This is our last week in the book of 1 Timothy. All right, like we are finishing out this short series that we've been doing uh, on a, it's sort of a chapter by chapter overview of the book of 1 Timothy. This is a letter that was written by the Apostle Paul to his protege, Timothy, who is sort of his son in the faith, is what he would call him later on in 2 Timothy. Uh, and uh, so he writes to, to Timothy with this sense of urgency there's something wrong in the church at Ephesus. And uh, actually, some uh, we'll get to it uh, later on today, but uh, this, in this last chapter, this closing that Paul uses, he just says, grace be with you. That's his closing. That's not normal for Paul. Paul likes to write long endings, right? But he just uses this short statement because he's going, like he's writing this letter to Timothy because something is terribly wrong and he needs to get this out the door right now, right? He's talking about false teaching. That's what he's getting at. He's saying these people are in there corrupting the gospel of Jesus Christ and the foundation of sound doctrine that I have laid out. I need to get to Timothy fast so that Timothy knows this is not okay and he needs to start distancing himself and distancing the church from these false teachers. So we've worked our way through the book of 1 Timothy so far. We've talked about the dangers of false teaching. We've looked uh, at how worship should be ordered. We've looked at the the unity and diversity of the church. We've looked at how it should be ordered in terms of officers, how we should pursue godliness and not worldliness, which we're going to get to today a little bit. And we've really talked about last week that core principle of honor that we should have within within a church toward one another, within our families toward one another, as is appropriate for uh, mothers, fathers in the faith, and for brothers and sisters in the faith. What an amazing thing that Paul has sort of laid out here for us, and we're going to get to close this out, sort of close the loop on a few basic items here today. But the basic idea, I think, gist of this piece of the book here is really... uh, the, the culmination of what I pointed out in my overview of 1 Timothy, which was this Godward attitude. He's getting to like, okay, here's all the stuff that I've given you so far, and now I want to just sort of juxtapose or contrast that with what the false teachers are giving you. And he wants to close the loop here. And so I want you to see the hopelessness of a life lived apart from God. And I wanna see, want you to see the joy and hope of a life lived in good relationship with God as our Father. That's really what I want to drive at today. I'm hoping that you're going to walk away from this sermon today thinking, man, a pursuit of godliness is not a heavy thing. It's a wonderful thing. That's what I want you walking away with today. And even if I don't make that point, now you know what I want you to walk away with. So, I mean, we could just call it here if you want me to, but all right, no, all right. Some of you are like, yeah. Short service today. No, we're not going to do that right now. Uh, we want to get into the word today because we are a, a Bible church, as, as some have put it. We are a, a doctrinal church. We want to teach good teaching, and we know that the only good doctrine is that which is contained in the scriptures that God has given us. And so we're going to go to God today through his word. We're going to hear what he has to say for us today through his word. It's going to be 1 Timothy 
chapter 6. We're going to start in verse 3, and we're going to read through the end. Why don't you guys stand with me as we uh, read this passage? We stand here at Mosaic because we want to show respect to the Word of God. You guys can sit while I, uh, while I preach. Don't sit yet, but you can, you can sit while I preach because these are the words of a man. But we stand because we want to show respect to the Word of God. So as much as we can, we will stand for that. Anyway, this is uh, 1 Timothy 6, chapter, uh, chapter 6, verse 3 through the end. It says, If anyone teaches a, sound, a different doctrine and does not agree with the sound words of our Lord Jesus Christ and the teaching that accords with godliness, he is puffed up with conceit and understands nothing. He has an unhealthy craving for controversy and for quarrels about words which produce envy, dissension, slander, evil suspicions, and constant friction among people who are depraved in mind and deprived of the truth, imagining that godliness is a means of gain. But godliness with contentment is great gain, for we brought nothing into the world and we cannot take anything out of the world. But if we have food and clothing with these, we will be content. But those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evils. It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and have pierced themselves with many pangs. But as for you, O man of God, flee these things. Pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, steadfastness, gentleness. Fight the good fight of faith. Take hold of the eternal life to which you were called, about which you made the good confession in the presence of many witnesses. I charge you in the presence of God, who gives life to all things, and of Christ Jesus, who in his testimony before Pontius Pilate made the good confession, to keep the commandment unstained and free from reproach until the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ, which he will display at the proper time. He who is the blessed and only sovereign, the King of kings and the Lord of lords, who alone has immortality, who dwells in unapproachable light, who no one has ever seen nor can see, to him be honor and eternal dominion. Amen. As for the rich in this present age, charge them not to be haughty, nor to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but on God, who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. They are to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share, thus storing up a treasure for themselves as a good foundation for the future, so that they may take hold of that which is truly life. O Timothy, guard the deposit entrusted to you. Avoid the irreverent babble and contradictions of what is falsely called knowledge. For by professing it, some have swerved from the faith. Grace be with you. May God bless the reading of his word. Let's pray real quick. Lord God, we pray that you would be with us this morning. Help us to comprehend what you have to say to us through your word this morning. Lord, it is not about what I say, I know. It is about what your Holy Spirit says to our hearts as, you hear, as we each hear the, the word proclaimed, and even, Lord, as I preach, and it is applied to my heart. I pray, Lord, that it would convict us, that it would embolden us, and that it would just give us joy to pursue godliness and to just shun worldliness. We thank you, Lord God, for this. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You guys can be seated. We're going to try to do a pretty like quick little run-through of this chapter because 
I really want to get at some of the application that we can see from the, the whole book. So bear with me as we sort of cover a few things pretty quickly if I can. Um, verses 3 through 5 are really the first section I want to get at today. Uh, this is one idea here. It says, if anyone teaches a different doctrine that does not agree with the sound words of the Lord Jesus Christ and the teaching that accords with godliness, he is puffed up with conceit and understands nothing. Understands nothing. It's an interesting way to, to, put, to put it, but we know that this is true. If you are outside of Christ, if you, are, if you have not understood at least that there is a God who created the universe, who, who is the blessed and only sovereign, as he later puts it, then it is conceited to stand in opposition to that. If, if God truly exists, right, you can, and you stand in opposition to what he has said, then you, you, you are in a conceited and foolish situation. Romans 1, 19 through 20 says, for what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. How? His in, invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made, so they are without excuse. What a, this is one of my favorite passages. Because it, it speaks to people who, who say, no, there is no God or there is no real creator. There are maybe small g gods who are limited in power, but they aren't really the creators of the universe. No, he, he's saying that if we just look at nature, we don't even have to come to the word of God yet. I know that's a scary thing for me to say as, as a Bible-believing like. Uh, conservative Christian, all right? But the reality is God's word tells us, go look outside, go look at the trees, go look at creation, look at the universe and be amazed. Understand that there must be a God who has created these things. What a wonderful thing. And yet we consistently, I say we as a human race, consistently deny these things. We refuse to believe that there is a God and instead, often, People say, well, there was a big bang, right? This is a, a great little scientific theory that I admit that I, I don't know all the nuance of. But the person who says there was a big bang says, out of absolutely nothing, something came. Nothing doesn't make something. It doesn't make sense. It is a, a logical leap to go from nothing existed and now something does without a cause. God is the uncaused cause. If there was a big bang, God made it, Right? You catch what I'm laying down? Like, it is absolutely logical to look at this creation that God has made and go, man, look at that. God made it. It is obvious. It is organized. There are laws governing all of these things. We have mathematical equations that describe these laws. God made the universe in a way that was made it able for us to understand it and that we could enjoy the systems that he created to make all this happen, to make the planets spin around one another. It is obvious that God exists, and yet we consistently, and I say, again, we as a culture consistently deny it. We're a culture that is increasingly becoming more and more atheistic. And yet we look outside, and, and what do we do? Well, we, we utter the lie of the serpent to ourselves. We look outside, and, and we say, well, did God really do this? Did God really say that was, the, that was the lie of the serpent. Did God really say this? Did God really do this? And the answer that we come up with in our minds often is, is no, he didn't do this. But that is absolutely contrary to rational thought. 
It's conceited to refuse to believe something that is absolutely obvious. Think about this. Like, so you take, say you take your car in and you're like, man, something's wrong with my car. You take it to the car guy. I don't know, automotive technician, right? I did this the other day. Uh, not this, well, actually, I, I did have this problem. So I took the car in, right? And, uh, and I was like, well, I need a bunch of work done. <laughs> like, it was a little... You know, I got, I got a little sick last year, and, and then things dropped off the plate, and then I just didn't care. Um, I, I have to admit that, right? Like, my car was, like, out of inspection by, like, a year. You know, like, I, I probably should get some work done on it. So I took it in, and I was like, hey, you know, I, there's some things wrong with the car. I need you to help me out. And uh, so say, say you did that, and you had a flat tire, right? You take it in, and he's like, okay, well, yeah, you've got a nail in your tire. You've got a flat tire. That's what's wrong with your car. It's obvious. You can see it. It's rational. He has diagnosed the problem. So it's, it's, it's like God in his word telling you this is the case and then showing you that it's the case by nature outside. And, and yet, like, you aren't going to drive off the lot with a flat tire going, no, 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 there's no nail there. That tire's fine. You're not going to do that. That's completely and utterly irrational. It's, it's foolish. Can I call it dumb? Like, it is absolutely foolish. And yet we do the same thing because God shows us all that we need to know in nature. Paul says that if you believe in this teaching that does not accord with godliness, that does not accord with what Jesus Christ has taught us and what God has shown us in nature by extension, then you are puffed up with conceit and understand nothing. Mm. That's, a, that's a big statement. And yet it is true. We have to see the the reality of, of everything and see that God has made it. And so if we do believe this, if, we are, if we're convinced, I think most of us in this room are convinced that God has made everything, that everything is under his sovereign rule and that he has created everything for us, then we have to start, again, connecting our faith, our, our belief with our practice. Let me just ask this. Like, a lot of people would say that, you know, well, obviously, if they don't believe in God, then they aren't going to believe that Jesus rose from the grave, right? But we say, yes, absolutely, Jesus did rise from the grave. In fact, he had to have rose from the grave for us to have any hope whatsoever. Then if that's the case, if you truly believe that, then you must not live this life like this is all there is right? There has to be something more. There has to be a hope and, a, and, a, and a, an end goal that is beyond just death or leaving some, some bit of, of, of inheritance or a, a dynasty for your, for your children or those who come after you. There has to be something more than that. Like, what, think about it. Like, if, if, you, if you don't connect your, your belief that Jesus rose from the grave to your practice, then, then you're really neglecting all the reasons that Jesus actually rose from the grave because he rose from the grave to provide one last miraculous proof that he was who he said he was and he would do what he said he would do. He rose from the grave to show his power over death and to provide us hope of our resurrection. And this is where I really want to get at for the first little bit of this sermon is I want you to see the hopelessness of a life lived without God. The idea that a, a, and let me just define God for a second. 
I'm going to say, if you don't believe in the triune personal God of the Bible, then life is hopeless. Right? Some people use the word God and what they really mean is like the universal chance, like it's just chaos and that's, and, and that's God to them. Right? That's not God. I'm talking about the triune personal God of the scriptures. I want you to see that we are hopeless without him and without a relationship, a right relationship with him through Jesus Christ. And if we know that, that Jesus died and rose again and we have faith in him that our righteousness counts for nothing and his righteousness counts for everything, then we've got to start living like it. We've got to start taking in that nature of true faith, which is first knowledge. We know that he rose from the grave and we agree that, yes, it did happen historically. And then we have to trust that it actually happened and we have to start living like it actually happened. That's where the hope comes in. But if you disconnect that belief in Jesus, you're like, yeah, I believe in Jesus. And yet you live as if he never died on the cross, as if you have no hope beyond this life, then you are living a life that is duplicitous. You are living a life in this area, kind of walled off, not, like, not gonna touch my, my faith over here, but my practice is something very different. But the, the person who looks at, at, at the material world and says, this is all there is, this must be all there is, they're hopeless. They don't see that there is hope in in life after death, there is hope and joy in, in, in eternity with God. We don't, they don't see that. And so the interesting part of this is that like, if you're engaging with someone who takes that sort of naturalistic mindset, and that's really what we're talking about here is naturalism. The idea that the supernatural does not exist and all that we have is what we see before ourselves, right? It's only what we can observe. That sort of mentality that I think Paul is getting at partially here in this, in this text and how uh, this is sort of displayed in our culture. Um, this idea that, that there is nothing apart from this world drives people to the logical conclusion that material gain is the only thing that we could possibly shoot for. Because if nothing means anything and you kind of like stuff, then you're just gonna run after stuff, right? Like if nothing really means anything. This is actually a very rational and logical leap. Like, for us, we say God exists and Jesus died on the cross and therefore we live with hope and joy and love and peace with one another and we, we aim at something eternal. The person who says God does not exist, their only hope is to fill their lives with stuff. It's a rational outworking. It's a logical outworking of their system of belief. We can't live like that. We live over here. We love God. We know God. We expect him to, to be with us, to hope, give us hope in Jesus Christ. And so we've got to distance ourselves from the idea of materialism or more broadly, perhaps, worldliness. This is two categories I want you to have moving forward. Godliness and worldliness. I used Venn diagrams last week. I'll do it again. There's a circle over here called godliness, and there's a circle over here called worldliness. The two do not meet. Now, some of the behaviors there may look the same, but the driver is different. Like, you might use a car just like everybody else does, 
There's overlap there somewhere. But the, the reason that you use that car is going to be different from the person who says, well, everything in my life is driving at trying to get stuff. And this is the, the, the issue that Paul was coming up against in this, uh, in this passage in verse 5. He says that these people who, who had denied the Lord Jesus Christ and denied good teaching are depraved in mind and deprived of the truth, imagining that godliness is a means of gain. Completely rational for them. If God does not exist as he proclaims himself to be in the Bible and has it as obvious from creation, then these people who look in and go, what are these Christians doing? Why do they live like this? Oh, it must be so that they can get more stuff because that's what motivates me. It makes, like, this was the confusion that Paul was coming up against in uh, the, the church at Ephesus uh, to some degree. And this sort of idea, this worldliness, isn't always outside of what's called Christianity. You've heard of the prosperity gospel. I think we've belabored that particular horse to death. Uh, but, like, I'll say it one more time, like the prosperity gospel, this idea that you can uh, you know, that this is your best life now and that you should pursue God as a means to get stuff, that is absolutely antithetical to what is in God's word. What we see right here, it is nowhere near it. It is not, that is, godliness is not a means of gain, of material gain. But while godliness isn't a, a means of material gain, it is great gain, right? He says that in verses 6 through 8. He says, but godliness with contentment is great gain. For we brought nothing into the world and we cannot take anything out of the world. But if we have food and clothing with that, with these, we will be content. How does that work? How, how can godliness not be a means to gain and yet, how can it be gain in and of itself? I think there are two ways that I've sort of considered as I've studied through this. There are two ways that we uh, gain by putting on godliness. First, we gain purpose if we pursue godliness. If we pursue godliness, we no longer live for ourselves. We no longer live for those, those internal sinful desires that make us think, oh, well, like I should go after this thing or that thing. We don't live for us anymore. We live unto God. We no longer live for, like a, for a fickle society. Right? The reality is that, especially in our culture today, you, you are going to work as hard as you can to make a name for yourself, for people to remember you, for, to do something good for society, and then somebody's going to find the smallest skeleton in your closet, and you are going to be forgotten. If you work for nothing other than society, your life is meaningless. You have to be working for something better, something higher. That's not to say you can't do, do good stuff for people. Obviously, Jesus did this. That's a good thing. But if your end goal is to better society, then you've got a problem because they're going to forget you. We gain purpose because we live unto God, which is really the purpose of all creation. The idea here is that we were created to love God and to worship him. And so we gain this purpose that is eternal, because God is permanent. Like, we could worship anything else in the universe, and it would just fall to pieces, and it would be pointless at the end of our lives. But if we spend our lives in worship to God and obedience to him in godliness, then, then 
We've done something eternal. We've done something with true eternal value. This is what we kind of got at in 1 Timothy 4. The second way that, that we sort of gain by putting on godliness is that we gain freedom. A lot of people think that godliness is a, is a, is a way to control. It's a, it's a set of rules and, and, and regulations that, that kind of tie us down and make us less free. This could not be further from the case because by re- rejecting this narrative of the world, we decouple our joy and hope from material possessions. By living unto God, you stop living for your stuff. And so when that stuff goes away, it doesn't affect your joy. It gives you freedom. Because if you lived for your stuff, you would be a slave to that stuff. Better to be a slave to God than a slave to your stuff. By rejecting materialism, then we can also find enjoyment in God's creation, true enjoyment without trying to make that fit into a, a hole that it, never meant, it was never meant to actually fit into. You, you tried this as kids, I assume, right? You had the little thing, you put the blocks in the right spaces, like the star shape and the circle shape. And the, you know, sometimes you could put the, the square block in the circle hole, and that was just bad design. But like, you don't want to do that kind of stuff. Like, you, the idea is here, here like, we can't take stuff and try to fill that hole of uh, that desire that we have for hope. Right? You can't take stuff and actually fill that hole. It's never going to happen. But if we reject materialism, and then, then we, can, we can worship God and we can see th- stuff as a means to worship. And we can enjoy the things that God has given us rightly. So you can sit down to a wonderful meal and thank God for providing that meal rather than looking at that meal and going, that's my means to joy. That's my means to true happiness and fulfillment in my life. You can do the same thing for cars. Like that car is going to get me from place to place so that I can better minister here or there. I can better get to my friends and family and and perhaps tell them about Jesus Christ. Wonderful things. Otherwise, you might look at that car and you would go, well, this is my means of happiness. And as soon as it gets the first scratch, you're destroyed. You ever been there? You guys have probably been there. I was there at one point. By pursuing our creator, we are also freed from the hopelessness and despair of this world. I say there's freedom. This is the, the highest form of freedom. Because as we pursue godliness, that's a, a Godward attitude in practice, we can live as we were intended. Think about that. If you, if you pursue godliness in your marriage, if any, any of you has, have done that, have, have tried to live as God has put it in his word, then I'm guessing that you have found it to be amazing and freeing. Because guess what? You know that there is security and love in that marriage. If you saw that from a different perspective and you were like, well, my marriage is a means to my ultimate joy, you couldn't really have security there because what happens if your ultimate joy kind of shifts a little bit? Well, that marriage is over. But if you see marriage as a wonderful expression of Christ's commitment to the church and the church's submission to Christ, wow, what an amazing thing that is. I know it from from experience. I know it. And I think that, that, that some of you understand what I'm talking about as well. I won't get into the rest of it, but 
I just want to make this point clear. We are freed as we pursue godliness. It's not something that holds us in. Like the society wants to tell us that we should have freedom to, to choose our gender or, or to, to uh, do all sorts of uh, things that are sort of outside of the, the norms of, of society and, and nature. And yet we see that these people are really just often slaves to whatever society says they're supposed to be. They're just following their desires rather than following God. If they followed God, man, I think that they would find that, that discontentment with themselves that they have would be lessened over time, right? It's not a, often a miraculous single moment. In fact, there are many people who have been in these situations and have not experienced that instantaneous thing. But I will tell you, that everyone that I've seen that has, has gone through that process of seeking for gender identity and even doing surgeries and drugs and things like that to do that and have come to, around to the, the reality of Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior, man, it's a complete change. It's an absolute change for them over time. There is freedom in living as God intended us to do. Verses 9 and 10 of this passage, we we get this idea that, or we, we run, run up against Paul saying that, this, uh, that the rich fall into a, uh, a temptation, into a snare, and into many senseless and harmful things. It's interesting. He says those who desire to be rich run into this. And I, I mean, I can verify that having looked at the, the lives of some rich people uh, just for, in the news and things like that. You can see this. They just run after the next thing that might fill that void that they feel of hopelessness, right? They, they, they pursue stuff and experiences in order to sort of fill that hopeless feeling. Again, I, I just want to hammer that home. This, this world struggles with hopelessness. This is the, the philosophy of our age. The idea that all is just matter and energy there is nothing spiritual. There is nothing eternal. It means that we are absolutely and utterly hopeless. And therefore, we must grab at things of this world in order to, to get that. But we don't need to fill hopelessness. We don't need to fill our hopelessness, at least with stuff. We get to fill our hopelessness, which is ours by default. Let's start there. We have a sin nature. When we start out, we don't know Christ Man, like we are hopeless, absolutely hopeless in this world because God is coming and he is going to judge the living and the dead. We are sinners. None of us is perfect. And yet the, 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 the offer that is held out in the gospel of Jesus Christ, which says that Jesus came and died the, the sinner's death that you deserved after living a perfect life, and then he rose from the grave so that you could have hope, hope for eternal life, that, that is what we get to fill the void with. Without God, without any of that, we are hopeless, but we have a hope that we can grasp onto. So we need not fill hopelessness or fill our lives in general with stuff. That means we don't have to follow the pattern of this world. We don't have to look at stuff as, a, as an end in and of itself. We can look at it as a means to an end. That end being holiness, righteousness, obedience to God, worship to him. And 
And the problem is that our, our culture continually peddles the lie that money solves our problems. You feel that? I know I feel it sometimes. Like, man, if we just had a little bit more, I could solve this problem. A little bit more, I could solve this problem. And eventually somewhere, like, the, the lie that you're beginning to believe is eventually somewhere I'll have enough money that all of my problems are solved. It becomes your God. We can't buy into that lie. That is absolutely not true. The passage says the love of money is a root of all kinds of evils. Interesting that you might know this as the, the love of money is the root of all evil. You may, may have heard that one. Um, that's the, the King James translation. Uh, we use the ESV translation. Uh, it's, I, I think there was a little bit of a translational error in the, uh, in the KJV because we know this not to be the case. The love of money is not actually the root of all evil, like the single root of all evil. But it leads to all kinds of evil. In fact, uh, I, I was reading through uh, John Calvin's commentary on this passage, uh, and he quoted an ancient Roman, po Roman poet who was a pagan. His name was Juvenal or Juvenilius or something like that. I don't know. Um, apparently, he's known as Juvenal in English. Uh, and he said, he who desires of becoming, or is desirous of becoming rich is also de desirous of acquiring riches soon. Okay distilling it down a little bit more. If you want to be rich, you want to be rich right now, right? I felt that. The problem with that sort of mindset and the, the reality of that, man, is that we start setting our sights on stuff rather than le setting our sights on God. And so we, we end up in this place of discontentment. We, talk, we talked about this, or contentment a little bit uh, as we read this passage. Uh, talks about how godliness with contentment is great gain. Well, the opposite of that is discontentment. You want to be rich? That means you're looking at what you have and saying, that's not enough. That's not okay. I need, to, I need, I need more. I need more than that. And I guarantee you that when you get to the next step, you're going to go, well, I need just a little bit more. And this discontentment leads to impatience right now. And then impatience often leads to compromised morals or principles. You start going, well, I can, I can fudge this line over here to get me riches right now. I can push this thing aside. I can, this one time, I'll just, I'll, I'll tell that little white lie over there so that I can get this bigger payoff. Those little compromises lead to a seared conscience, which leads you even further into sin, right? It just sort of opens the pathway. You go like, this is the straight and narrow. This is, this is where my principles derived from biblical truth would lead me. I'm going to take this little detour right here. And that leads you off in a completely separate direction. It widens the funnel. You just keep heading down one path or another. And it will eventually lead you into a place where you have a seared conscience, which is uh, a place where, that will eventually lead you away from the faith. That's what he gets at in the, in the, in the, pa in the last part of verse 10. He says, uh, it is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith. Actually, like saying, no, I don't believe anymore because my conscience is so seared because I've said yes to all those things in order to get rich. And this isn't the only way things can roll, obviously, but... These are some of the dangers of desiring to be rich as an end of itself. 
What's, what's interesting about this desire to be rich is that all of this is going to pass away. Everything that we have, everything we've, we've bought that we, that we use, that we enjoy, all of it will pass away. Either it's going to, to pass away when we die, because we can't take it with us. Paul says it in verse 7. Can't take it with you. So it's effectively dead to you. It has passed away. Or new creation is going to come. Everything that you've built will be tested by fire. God says, I'm going to burn it all. And what's left will only be that which God has said should endure. That's an interesting one, right? Like, it, it almost feels like life is like a, like a, a puzzle. Do you guys like, like puzzles? Anybody like puzzles a little bit? Okay, somebody likes a puzzle. All right, like, I, I kind of enjoy puzzles. Ashley says she likes to, to do puzzles, but then she, like, leaves me 30 minutes in, and then I'm doing the rest of it by myself, um, which sounds like a sad existence, but I love it. I don't know. Um, we had this one puzzle one time that was, uh, it was cereal boxes through the years, and it was, like, it was so difficult because it was, like, five different life cereal boxes from, like, different decades. And so you go, oh, this is the life cereal. Oh, wait, <laughs> there's five of those. And yeah, it was, it was incredibly frustrating. It took me like, I think I was up until 4 a.m. that day like, <laughs> working on the, yeah, I'm a, I'm a geek, I know. That's okay. Uh, you can judge me just a little bit. I gave you permission. But the idea here is it, like behind the, this thought of puzzles is that it's so temporary. You work so hard to find all the right pieces and put them in the right places and get it just right. And then what do you do with that puzzle when you're done? Well, if you're a little crazy, you like put glue on the back of it and you hang it as a picture or whatever else. Yeah, like, okay, a little crazy, right? Uh, not all the way crazy. But like, if, if you've got that sort of mentality, that's fine, but that's not kind of where I'm headed with this. Usually what happens for me is it sits on the coffee table for a while and we're like, hey, that looks nice. And about a day later, it's like, that's not so nice anymore. We don't have a coffee table to use. We need to put this back in the box. So it all goes away, all that hard work everything that you've done, gone. That's a lot like what happens in our lives. Dynasties, inheritances, investments in future generations, not even just stuff, but like things that you've created, temporary. And all of it, like think of this, like just a few lifetimes from now, you will be a distant memory if you're remembered at all. And everything that you created will be, either be gone or it will look unrecognizably different. Like, maybe people rem will remember your name, but they won't know you. Everything you did. And those for, who are remembered for hundreds or thousands of years are, are outliers here. You know how many billions of people have lived on this planet that you will never know existed? You're one of them. But on the day of judgment, everything is, is going to be burned up going to be tested by fire. 1 Corinthians 3, it says, Now if anyone builds on a foundation with gold, silver, or precious stones, wood, hay, and straw, each one's work will become manifest, for the day will disclose it, 
because it will be revealed by fire, and the fire will test what sort of work each one has done. So in history, human remembrance, all of what you do becomes pointless unless it's done unto God. Building on the firm foundation of sound doctrine and living unto him, that is the only thing that is worthwhile in this life. The pursuit of stuff will ultimately lead you away from true joy and meaning in your life. A lot of people at the top really just end up grasping for for new and different experiences, new and different things. But if they knew better, if they knew that everything that they did was going to be small unless it was for God, man, how pointless would that feel? In fact, over the last few weeks, I've been reading a, uh, a book called The God Who Is There by uh, Francis Schaeffer. Um, to be honest, it was a little over my head. Uh, I, it required this knowledge of philosophy that I didn't quite have, but I understood some of the stuff that he was talking about you know, by, by inference, just sort of grabbing the bits and pieces I could, I could catch and maybe learning some stuff along the way. One of the things that he really talks about is this idea of a modern man having distanced himself from God, saying, well, I don't need God in order to be fulfilled. I don't need to believe in a God in order to be truly, uh, like have true meaning in my life. And so they, they pursue the logical ends, though, of their belief. They say, there is no God, and therefore I'm going to pursue everything else. I'm going to do everything with, with randomness because absolutely nothing actually makes any difference. Uh, like, or I'm going to pursue these things because they make me happy, just me. It's one of two. Interestingly, the most rational among most modern philosophers who have said, I, like, if there is no God, then everything is basically the same and therefore nothing has any real meaning. They've been, like, these are the smartest people of the last several generations, by the way. These philosophers have thought about these things and they've gone, okay, there is no God, therefore, I, like, all is just matter and energy and really the feelings that we have mean nothing because they're just chemicals in the brain and, like, and the brain is nothing. It's just some evolutionary bit of, of protein and fat and everything else. It's nothing. It really means nothing. The most intelligent, the most rational of those philosophers, artists, things like that, you know what they did? They committed suicide. Hopelessness, absolute and utter hopelessness set in because they stepped away from faith in God. They followed their conclusions to the logical end. The least rational of them just said, well, I have to make a leap of faith. I know that nothing means anything, but you know, I kind of like stuff. I, I, so I, I, I'm just going to pursue what I want to pursue, but I, I I have this dichotomy now of like, I do these things, but I don't, they don't actually mean anything. And again, you're met with hopelessness because at some point you're gonna do all the things you wanted to do and you're going to find that nothing is there. But God is where true joy is found. Paul says in Philippians 4.11 through 13 that he's learned to be content in any circumstance. Why? Because he set his focus upon God. That's what the Christian must do. That's what someone who believes in a personal triune God who sent his only son to die for sinners must do. We must drive from that point and go, 
My sights are set on the one who saved me, the one who redeemed me, and I'm going to live my life unto him. I can use the stuff that he gives me for those means. I can minister to my family. I can love other people. I can do all sorts of wonderful things unto him, and that's really what makes it worthwhile. Verses 11 through 12 of this passage kind of encourages Timothy. He says, as for you, O man of God, flee these things. Flee the, 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 the deceitfulness of riches. Pursue godliness, righteousness, faith, love, steadfastness, and gentleness. Fight the good fight of faith. This is really just overall application of what he's been getting at this whole book. He's like, this is just simple application. Pursue something other than what this world says you should pursue. Don't live your life like everything is meaningless or like stuff is your God. Live your life unto God as he has laid it out for you. Ephesians 2.10 says he has prepared good works for us to walk in. Do that and it will stand the test of time. It will do real ministry to people's eternal souls. This fight, and I know it's a fight. Paul knew it was a fight. This fight is worth fighting because it testifies to the grace of God who saved you and it gives meaning to our lives, like I've said. In the, the following verses, 13 through 16, Paul gives this amazing charge. Like he, he ups the ante, right? He goes like, I've been very serious so far and now I'm gonna get more serious. Like Dale and I were talking this past week after the sermon was over and uh, he was like, man, I want to get to something a little bit more like spiritual. I think refreshing was kind of what you're getting at, right? Like things feel like they've been very serious for the last several weeks, very like cut and dry. And Paul's like, no, I'm just going to double down. <laughs> I'm just going to do it again. He says, I charge you in the presence of God who gives life to all things and of Christ Jesus to keep the commandment unstained and free from reproach until the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ. He says, no, like this stuff is not just a little serious. It is paramount. It is top priority for you. He just takes this time to remind us before whom we live. I talked about that concept, Coram Deo, before the face of God. That's how we live our lives. And he just says, you live before God. Pursue these things. And I charge you to do it because he is watching. This isn't a, a fear of judgment before God. It is a desire to please your heavenly father. Perhaps even a, a, a righteous and godly fear of his chastisement of you as his child. Who wants to be disciplined by their parent, right? You guys remember this from when you were kids? Not a pleasant thing, but something that was good for you, hopefully. If we have a reasonable fear of God as our heavenly father, then we are going to go, he's watching right now. He, he wants me to do the right thing. He wants me to, to walk in the good works that he has prepared before me. If you remember that, man, I, I hope you do that because he, he's sitting there rooting for you. He's like, Come on, you can do this. I've given you the strength. We can, let's go. You need to walk in it. 
I want to just focus in for a second on, uh, on 15 and 16 because I feel like we could just spend an hour there, but we're not going to. Um, another hour there, I mean. Um, but I, I, I would encourage you to, to look at these again as a means of hope. You're looking for something, you know, a bit more uplifting. This is it, right? 15 and 16. I'm just going to read it. It says, uh, it, he talks about the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ in 14 which he will display at the proper time. He who is the blessed and only sovereign, the King of kings and the Lord of lords, who alone has immortality, who dwells in unapproachable light, whom no one has ever seen or can see, to him be the honor and eternal dominion. Amen. This doxology, this moment of worship, he's like, man, look at how wonderful this God is, the blessed and only sovereign. He's the one you serve. What a wonderful thing to truly serve the, the, the God of the universe. For him to be as a father to you and you to be as a child to him, how wonderful is that? We have to remember who he is, and this doxology helps us to remember that. The final thing I want to say about this passage, verses 17 through 21, really gets at the, or really 17 through, uh, through 19, gets at that idea of, of again, desiring to be rich. But it's not really the desire of riches now, it's the people who are already rich. Those who providentially God has given much material wealth. What does he say about this? He says, as for the rich in the present age, charge them not to be haughty or to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but on God. You think you're rich? Most of us are probably like, eh, not really, right? Like, you know, I can look at my bank account and I know how much is in there. Like, I, I wouldn't call myself rich. I'm not like, you know, top 1% or whatever it is, right? I don't know. I, I think we're actually, like, as a culture, like, we who sit in this room are pretty rich. I know there's probably a lot of, like, wealth and salary dis discrepancy and things like that amongst the group here, but... This is an interesting stat. I looked this up. It was a Pew Research study done in 2011. Um, it was the U.S., like the amount of money that each person lived on per day versus the world, okay? This is crazy stuff. This is 2011. I, I can't imagine that it's gotten any, you know, any better from here, but maybe it has. But take it with a grain of salt. It's been, you know, what is that, 10 years. Pew Research says that only 5% of the U.S. population is considered low income or poor, okay? This is less than $10 per day of living expenditure. That's low income or poor. 71% of the rest of the world's population lives at that same level, $10 a day or less. 71% versus 5% of this country. 88% of the U.S. population is considered upper middle or high income. 88%. I think it's more like 2% for the rest of the world. It's crazy, the disparity. You, you think you're, you're not rich? You probably are in the grand scheme. Maybe not compared to your peers, whatever else, but compared to the rest of the world, we're there. And so this really applies to us. He says... Don't be haughty or set your hopes on the uncertainty of riches, material possessions. Don't set your hopes on these things, but set your eyes on God who richly provides 
us with everything to enjoy. I love that. Right at the end there, he's like, guess what? If you receive it with thanksgiving and you don't set your hopes on these things, you can enjoy them. You can just sit back, relax, and you can enjoy that good meal. You can enjoy the car that you have, whatever else, as long as your eyes are on God. And he also charges the rich to do good, to be rich in good works and to be generous and ready to share. What a wonderful charge. I think we could do more of that as rich people in this culture. In fact, I would say that, interestingly, we, we might be the poorest of all uh, when it comes to, to relationships, in terms of spirit, spirituality even. We might be one of the poorest countries when it comes to those things because it's a lot easier to see your need when you're suffering, when you don't know where your next meal is coming from. It's a lot easier to be passive and complacent when you have the luxury of doing so. And so we end up very poor at times. Let's not be complacent Christians. Let's remember that God has given what, what he's given as gifts to us to use for his glory. The last thing that Paul says here in verse 20, he says, oh, Timothy, guard the deposit entrusted to you. Man, I, I love that one bet right there. He turns it around. He talks about the riches of this world, and then he's like, but you have been given so much more. I've given you sound doctrine and good practice. Guard that deposit. Give away everything else if you must. That is the one thing in your life you must always guard. Right belief, right practice. Godliness. This is the deposit that was given to Timothy. Guard it. Get away from all of the irreverent babble of this world. And then he just says, grace be with you. He says, you're going to need it. This is a hard message. It's a hard thing to think about. But he prays, grace be with you. So where does this leave us? We're at the end of the chapter. We're at the end of the book. Where does it leave us? I want to leave you with a couple of thoughts uh, just of application as we move from here. I think we've talked a lot about doctrine. We've talked a lot about how things maybe work out in the context of the church, but I just want to ask you a couple of self-assessment questions, and I want you to walk out of here thinking about these things. I guess the first thing I want you to think about is, uh, is whether you're pursuing worldliness over godliness. But these other two things, as we kind of consider the whole book, let's think about these as well. First, is your doctrine sound? Is what you believe based upon that which is actually true, or is it based upon your feelings? Have you allowed false teaching to creep in? Have you allowed yourself to, to corrupt the doctrine that you, that you know in order to get around some sticky spots, some difficult places in your own mind? Or if you think maybe your doctrine is solid, I want to ask you, how do you know? How do you know what you believe is true? How do you know? Let me give you one way. The way to figure it out. We go to God's word. We ask, what does he have for me? 
in here that I need to learn, that I need to know about his work, his character, what he has done, what he is leading me to. How do we know good doctrine? We go to the word of God and we compare what we believe with this because this is the only infallible rule for all of faith and life. There are other ways that we can figure out whether we measure up or not. This is the only one that is absolutely infallible. It cannot fail. That's what that means. So we go to this and we go, what, is, what do I believe? And does it line up? And where we, it, is lining up, it is not lining up, we should adjust. The second thing I want you to consider is kind of going back to the, the previous week and really what we've hit, hit at today. Are you taking what you know to be true, that you've derived from God's word, and are you practicing godliness? Are you training for godliness in your life? I know that there are times when repentance is necessary here. You know, I, I hope that over the last several weeks, some of this has cut you a little bit. You know, it, it, it's definitely cut me. And I needed to ask this question. I, I need to ask this question almost every day. Like, what am I pursuing? Am I pursuing godliness? What does that look like when I approach worship on a Sunday morning? Am I worried more about getting all the stuff set up and everything else, or am I worried more about worshiping the one true God of the universe? Am I pursuing godliness? What does that look like in everyday life? How does it work with me interacting with my wife or, or talking to you guys about whatever, whether it's just hanging out, you know, being friends, or it's more serious matters. What does it mean to be godly, to have trained myself for godliness in those situations? What does it mean for you to train yourself for godliness? Is this your core goal, or are you worried about the things of this world far too much? I'm just going to leave it there. I want you to walk away with that. Thanks for listening to the Mosaic Church Sermon Podcast. For more information about Mosaic, including location and service times, or to support us financially, visit our website at mosaicrva.com or find us on Instagram and Facebook at Mosaic Church RVA. Remember, it's not about us, it's all about Jesus.